And that's the truth. I'm excited about this Christmas season that you guys are here today. And one of the reasons I'm excited is because I really believe God wants to do some amazing things in the hearts and lives of our friends and our family. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a minute now to uh, have that opportunity to uh, personally invite some people. There are people who have moved into Corona. And if you have gotten one of our handouts, you have one of the postcards. If you need a postcard and you would like to do this and you don't have one, would you do me a favor and just raise your hand and our, our host team will come grab that and give one, give you one of those. They'll indicate that you need that. Let them know. And so pull that out. And here's what we're going to do. On this postcard up on the screen, we have both sides. We, we have the side you're going to leave blank. And then if you could just write a message of just inviting those people, you can copy this one if you'd like. That's fine. And what you're doing is just putting, just saying, hey, we, we want you to be here. We love it when we see people come into our church. Amen. And we want to be able to invite those people in. So we want to see people have a community. And we love this community. We want to see people to have, have people that they love and, and get around them. We love our Lord. We love them to know him as well. And so let's just um, get that opportunity. Christmas is a time for people to, to connect with churches. And so we'd love them to connect here. And so use that card. Fill that out and do that with me right now. Grab your pens. There's pens in the seats. We're going to take a minute and a half to just uh, take some time and write this stuff in there. So go ahead and do that with me right now. So those of you who are at home watching this on Facebook Live, if you wanted to do this, you can come in. We'll have some postcards available. Go ahead and grab, uh, come on in during the week. We'd love for you to grab those and fill them out as well. As you guys get it done and get those ready, we'd ask you pass them towards the center aisle so we don't pick them up. So pass them across the aisle so pass this way on in. And it just occurred to me as I was looking at mine that I wrote last night, my writing looks like a third grader's. It's just not that good. It's a, I don't know how you guys feel about your own writing, but it, it doesn't matter. And that's, that's the point. We want to make it personal and care about people. Now, we're, we're talking about this series in Christmas. As you're finishing up, I'll go ahead and get started. And again, passing those into the center. We're talking about a series on Christmas, that the point of Christmas is Jesus. And so much of our Christmas music in our current time period is pointing away from that. It's pointing to our gifts and the presents and the fun and the, and the lights and the snow and the candles and all the great stuff that are, that are part of kind of the, the shape of Christmas. But in all honesty, when you lose the centerpiece of Christmas, when you lose Jesus, it just becomes rote practice. It becomes things that honestly don't have a lot of information or a lot of meaning behind them. Uh, Santa Claus just is something to do. You know, giving gifts is just something that, that happens. Uh, having a tree is just something that you do. Again, it's just kind of why? What's the purpose? What's behind all of these things? What we want to be able to do is call people back to the point, to bring them back to the conversation that God is the one who gave first. That's why we give. And so there is this sense of, of the origination with God. In fact, a lot of things that we talk about in the secular culture kind of is, is being brought up that's dealt with in church all the time. I'll give you a simple example. Something that happens for me happened in junior high. I don't know about you guys, but I'm sure all of us have had this thought at some point. I was not the original. 
You walked outside or you stood outside one, one day when you were in junior high or early on, and you looked up at the sky, and you looked at the stars, and you went, whoa, those are cool. And then you thought this, whoa, what if, what if there's something else up there? I wonder if we're not, it's so big. Are we alone? We, if we're alone, it's going to be so bad. Is there somebody there? Do you ever think those thoughts with me? Then you had the other thought, like, what if the, your green shirt is actually blue and your blue is there? Yeah, all those, okay, junior high thoughts are awesome. And so the, uh, when you look at the star and you ask that question, man, what is up there? Could there be some there? Like Star I think what's sad is like Star Wars and Star Trek and all this stuff comes out. And it's always assuming, yep, there's alien planets. Yep, there's stuff out there. There you'll find alien civilizations. And yet that's not been proven. Even those habitable planets that we find um, are just planets that might have water. And there's a lot of conversation about uh, all the astrobiology and all this kind of stuff out there. Well, what's interesting is the answer to the question, is something else out there, is being answered differently today in a way that's never been answered really before. And that um, it was clearly stated by Scott Adams. He's a cartoonist who, who made Dilbert. Any Dilbert fans out here? You love Dilbert? So he's the creator of Dilbert, and he writes Dilbert cartoons. And when he was interviewed on a podcast I listened to, he actually made this conversation. He says, yeah, I don't really believe in God. And I'm not big into like, yeah, maybe evolution happened or not. But I really think that it all came down to this. He's like, I think we're all in a computer simulation. And he wasn't kidding. Dead seriously. And like the interviewer's like, really? You don't think that's like a replacement? No, he's like, no, I, I think probably, you gotta understand the technology is getting so fast and so good. Eventually we're going to be able to create small simulations where the things that we've simulated really think they're alive. And I think that's what we are. We're probably out on some junior higher lab in some universe out there. And we all think that we're real people who really have feelings and somebody's out there. And the answer is yes, there's somebody out there. In fact, this isn't a laughing matter. Many people in Silicon Valley believe this. This is their answer to the question, is there a God? They go, no, we're probably a computer simulation. We're in a computer program of some kind of thing. Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's famed, he's a famous astrophysicist, and he's, he's famed for actually deplanetizing Pluto, meaning Pluto no longer gets to be the, the ninth planet, right? It's just a little dwarf thing that's out there. That's sad. But he, he comes out, he redid Cosmos. So he's a well-known guy. He actually says he gives it a 50-50 shot that we dwell in some kind of computer simulation, which just leads me to ask one simple question. Do you want the red pill or the blue pill? <laughs> right? I mean, that's about it. That's what it comes down to for most of these guys. And so when you, when you realize this, they're trying to answer the question, are we alone? There's another group called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. They've been around since 1985. They're up, in, up, up north in Mountain View, California, near, the, near San Francisco. And they study and spend their entire time as a nonprofit searching the skies and searching for science to answer these questions. Are we alone? Where did we come from? What's really gone on? And so they, they, they do all this information. And in the bottom, in the bottom line of all that they're looking for is this, that if the heavens were to shout some kind of digital signal, some kind of information that we could grasp as that is not natural, then we would know there's a civilization. We would know there's something else out there. In other words, if heaven shouts, we should listen. If heaven gives us some kind of signal, some kind of information, I think we got to perk up and go, whoa, what's going on here? The answer to are we alone has been answered. And actually, every Christmas we sing and celebrate the idea that that very thing has been answered. The first contact happened a long time ago. And one of those contacts happened when we talk about the idea of these beings that we would call angels. And before you knock angels, stop, especially if you think you're in a computer simulation, there's the potential they could have been programmed in. So, ha, uh, the, 
But if you, if you think about it, I don't think it's, it's too far-fetched to think of interdimensional beings that have the ability to transverse dimension and space in order to come and communicate to us. Is that out of there, out, outside of all the other concepts that we're coming up with nowadays? And that angels are very much a very potential reality in this universe or outside of this universe that are coming and contacting, connected with us. And that is exactly what happened when in the heavens, one day, there came contact and there came information that we should listen to. In fact, we just sang about it. Two songs today we sang, and they're, they're religious songs, they're church songs. And the first one is, Angels We Have Heard on High. And the second was, hark the herald angel sings. Herald being announcing or shouting angels, not herald the angel. That's a different guy. Um, He's one of the non-archangels. So I thought that was funny. Anyway, so the the lyrics in the first song, Angels We Have Heard on High, which you have in your handouts, you you can look at. And they walk us specifically through a text that you and I know probably fairly well if you're church, or maybe you've never seen before, but you've heard Linus say it, um, actually speak it on the the Peanuts uh, Christmas special. And it starts off this way, Angels We Have Heard on High, sweetly singing o'er the plain, and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strains, Gloria in excelsis Deo, which means Glory to God in the highest. We actually find this language here in the book of Luke, chapter 2. Now, Luke, this book is a biography written by Dr. Luke, who was a historian and a biographer of Jesus. He was alive at the time of Jesus' followers, just within a few decades, probably a decade after Jesus' crucifixion. He was in Jerusalem interviewing and, and talking to people, gathering information. He writes this for a Roman official. And in his information, as he derives it, he gives us this story from Mary's perspective of the birth of Christ. They had just been, there was a census that was taken. Mary and Joseph had been taken down to Bethlehem for the census. And in that same region, it says there were shepherds out in the flock, uh, on the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were to write this as a fiction, I don't know if you would have thought that angels were scary. You know, little cherub fat babies floating around. That's that's not what an angel looks like, obviously. But what about contact from heaven doesn't freak us out? I remember watching the movie um, The Man of Steel when it came out. And there's a scene in there where the, the, the aliens have their ship just outside of the orbiting, the orbiting planet. It looks like this little dot up in the sky, and they zoom in on it. And you're just like, that would be freaky, because that's kind of what the newsreel would look like, right? We'd be zooming in on looking at this thing. And the panic that ensues in people's hearts and minds is instantaneous because of this other, because of this, these others that have come that are different than us. Fear is a natural, real response if you were to be contacted with something beyond you. And that's exactly what we see here. A sudden fear grips their hearts. And so they're told by the angels, don't fear. In the same re- and so it goes into this in verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so he says, this is this one, this Savior is coming, this Christ is coming. Now, we looked at last week the, the prophecies. 
We've laid out dozen, a dozen or so prophecies that line up, all landing on Jesus. There's 300 of them, as we indicate. Right now they're having a, a class upstairs where they're going through all those prophecies, looking at them. And as we're doing this, we're showing that this was a predicted event that happens as precisely at the time it was supposed to as this one who is called Messiah, Savior, or Anointed One, um, who is our Savior, comes in. Now, so they announce this again, and it moves forward. And they will be a sign for you, shepherds. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. That's the heavenly army. That that would make you gulp if the heavenly army showed up. The alien army appeared in the sky, in a sense. But they came praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so what we get is the next line. It says, Come to Bethlehem and see Christ whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, newborn King. This is from the perspective of the shepherds saying, Let's go check this out. And so we pick up this song. We see that it then goes on to the visitation as they view Mary. Now, What's interesting about this is the second song, Hark the Herald Angel Sings, will dive not into the story, but it's going to dive into the idea. And what is being proclaimed by the angels is interesting. Notice again that if heaven's going to shout, they're trying to tell you something. It's got to be something we need to listen to. So what are they saying? Actually, there's heaven is shouting that a Savior has come. That's exactly what they said in verse 11. They said, for unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Now this word Savior is an important term throughout all of the Bible. Salvation and all this stuff comes in and out all throughout the Hebrew texts and all the, and the Christian texts. But look, as Americans, saviors are not kind of the things we really think we need too much. Isn't that true? When you define a Savior, it's somebody who gets you or rescues you from danger. And we want to think that we can get ourselves out of our danger. We can do it ourselves. It's just American spirit of being individuals. We don't need nobody. I'll fix this problem myself. Well, actually, we are very littered with saviors in our culture. We have lots of saviors we look to. Now, we don't necessarily look to spiritual saviors anymore much in our, in our secular culture. We're kind of like, yeah, that's, that's cute and silly. But what we do look to all the time is we often, many people are now looking to the government as their savior. Isn't that true? Man, they're hunting down for the, to break down all kinds of things for them. Some people are looking for it out of inequality. Some people are looking for it to keep the danger away from the border. Some people are looking for it and all kinds of things, seeking for a savior amidst the government. Some people in our culture are seeking a savior of another kind. They're looking for a savior when it comes to, oh, maybe some of you have said this. I got a lot of bills. I got a lot of stuff. I don't know what to do. I know I got credit. Credit can be a savior. Anybody remember that one? You're like, I can't pay for that school, so you got a student loan. That's called credit. And when you don't, and then you got a credit card, and suddenly you realize, and there's a bad habit many Americans are in that when I'm in trouble, I can get myself out of it with money or credit. And if I had more money, I would have more savior to help me out here. And that's the vision that we have. Money often works as a savior from financial danger. Credit works as a savior from financial danger. The third savior many Americans look to is this big old thing called science, right? Because let's face it, if you ever hear the words you have cancer, then you are hunting for a savior from science. 
Because you want that medical science to help you out and to heal your cancer. Some of, there are people in this world who are so sure science is going to win, they had themselves cryogenically frozen in hopes that one day they'll be resuscitated and healed of their diseases. That's going a long way with being thinking of science as a savior. But these three things are there, and they dwell in all of our lives. And in some cases, indeed, they do save us from many things. But neither government nor money nor even science can save us from what this text is talking about. See, here's the thing. If an alien civilization was ever to show up in the skies, I think after the first question, the second question, the first question is always, what in the world is that thing? That's always the first question. The second question is, are they hostile? Are you for us or against us? Their first question is always, take me to your leader. That's not a question. But, <laughs> but we're asking, are you hostile? And what they came and said was something scary. A Savior has come who saves you from danger. Well, what's the danger? What's the real danger that Evan would have to shout about to capture our attention? And to this we turn to the next text, the next time. In fact, what we discover is that what heaven is shouting about, that a Savior has come, the danger that we have is the danger of ourselves. This is very interesting as we look at it because there was another moment in which an angel made contact with, a, with one of the people in the Christmas story. In this case, it comes from the author of the, of the biography that Matthew writes of Jesus. And Matthew is writing about Joseph's vision and Joseph's perspective. Now, it begins this way. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, this word betrothed is far more than, be, than the idea of being um, engaged. In our culture, engagement is, is tight, but it's not as tight as this time. These were arranged marriages in which suddenly your families got together, you were made a contract that you were getting married, and now you were betrothed. And what happens is Joseph has a normal human experience when his betrothed soon-to-be wife comes up and says, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. He said, yeah, right. That's not how that works, girl. That's exactly how that went down, I swear. And so he turns and he sits down, and the husband and her, and, and, and he's going, okay, I'm done with this. So, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, because obviously she's crazy in his mind, he resolved to divorce her quietly. She's not going to publicly shame her, so he did it quietly. And as he does so, he shouldn't be known as Jesus' dad then. But we still know of Joseph and Mary, right? That's how this, the songs go. That's how the story goes. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And it was an angelic vision that made Joseph stick in a very difficult setting in a world that otherwise this wouldn't have worked in. And so suddenly it says, she's going to bear a son. You should call his name Jesus or Yeshua, which is actually interesting because that's the word for salvation in Hebrew. And for he will save his people from their sins. What's the danger? The people's sins. What is he going to save us from? What's the Savior here for? He's here to save us from ourselves, from this word sin, from this horrible evil thing called sin. And you all know you're sinners. And you know, you got that stuff, okay? Our culture thinks that word is silly. 
Let's be honest. We use sin as like enticing. It's like, oh, it's as good as sin. <laughs> Ooh, you want some sinfully delicious chocolate? Mm, right? That's how our culture loves this word. And, and so when we talk about sin at church, you're like, oh, here we go. We're all a bunch of sinners. You push us out and we're all evil. No, no, no. Let's, let's put sin in its proper context. I want to I do something for you. I want to redefine the term so you can hear how, uh, how all the authors that have written the books in the Bible kind of pull it together. And this is the term of sin. It actually is going to require me to use some visual illustration today. See, sin is an archery term. An archery to sin was when you pulled back the arrow and let it fly, and unfortunately, you didn't hit your target. I'm going to reveal what this looks like, but I don't have an archery. Uh, I don't have archery stuff. I'm not going to bust out like a, a whole crossbow and things like that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to use darts. I like darts. Darts work good. And so what you're supposed to do in darts, obviously we all know this, you're supposed to stand here, and then you're supposed to... Hit the, hit the board. Hit the target. Get on the board. Last night, I nailed a bullseye at that point. That was awesome. I was like, done. I'm out. But that, that, this isn't, that's not sinning. What I did was exactly what you're supposed to do in darts. You may need to target a little better and get a little stronger. But here we go. This, I'm going to try to hit that bullseye. Okay, let me try that again. Okay, this is obviously deliberate. This is called sinning. That's literally what that's called. To miss the mark completely, to have missed the target at all, and to hit the ground and not hit anywhere near your target, that's called sin. It means to fail, to fail to hit your mark. And so when you take your arrow and you flung it and you missed, you fail and therefore you sin. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about failure... Failures is closer to the term sin than anything else that you and I have in our normal English. You're, we fail. And so when we think about failing to hit our mark, we only fail in two cases. You either fail a standard or you fail someone. Everybody remember your tests you took as kids, right? Who loved tests? I don't know how many people. Somebody's like, I love tests, nerd. You know, it's like that's a... Nobody liked tests. You had to take tests. And the worst thing is to fail the test. Now, we all know today you can't really fail a test. There's always extra credit. Somebody's going to move your curve. There's a bell curve. When you really fail in college, though, here's the thing. When you fail in college and you fail the course, it's on your permanent record. It shows up there the whole time. It's in your transcripts. It doesn't go away. In this case, when you fail a standard, you've missed what you should have hit to pass. And so you fail. In another case, it's to fail a person. When we fail each other, we don't hold up to what we promised or how we knew we were supposed to act or how we're supposed to communicate and deal with each other. And therefore, what happens is we fail to meet the standard of which care and love and concern is. And so we either fail a standard or we fail someone. In the case of the word sin, the case of missing the mark, we are actually failing both a someone and a something and a standard. In Romans 3.23, Paul is writing to the church of Rome as he's preparing to go through there for a missions kind of gathering and then head off to Spain. And he writes, he says, for everyone has sinned. Everyone has morally failed. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And so God's glorious standard that he set up here is very clearly laid out by Jesus when he said, you need to love 
the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When you love one another, you will love God. When you love those made in the image of God, you will show your honor to God. And when you treat each other poorly, you dishonor God. You fail to hit the moral mark. Why do I call it a moral mark? Because God's standard is a moral standard. When you look at a standard by which we ought to live, given to you by the Creator, that is the standard. When someone designs a car and produces how you ought to treat the car, that's the standard. And when we fail to hit the standard, we fail God and we fail each other and we fail morally. The word sin is to be morally Failure, to fail morally, completely moral failure. In other words, I sit amongst and stand before you as a complete moral failure. We're all moral failures. Because let's face it, so often in this conversation, we're like, I'm not a moral failure. I mean, sure, I've sinned a few times. few times? No, we fail over. Over Every time we're screaming, yelling at our kids, every time we're upset at our friend, every time we're turning around and we're just like, man, I don't want this and I've spent that money. I promised I wouldn't spend. I've lusted at that image that I shouldn't be looking at. You name it. That's all moral failure. We've objectified other human beings and we've done these things and we fail what God has called us to over and over. We fail to love him. We fail to love others. We fail to love him. We fail to love others. There's not just one little moral failure back there. Our histories are littered with moral failure. And that's what the danger is. You see, but it doesn't really matter, Greg. This is just, it's not that big of a deal. Come on. It's not hurting anybody. I beg to differ. Let me explain this illustration just a little bit different. Do me a favor, Mark. Will you grab that for me? Hold that over your chest and go stand. Thank you. Actually, no, go stand right in the middle of the aisle. Right there, a little bit further. No, uh, a little bit closer to everybody else. That looks good, right? See, this is the real illustration of moral failure. I'm just kidding. Uh, you can bring those both back up to me again. Can you thank Mark for me? Thank you for being my target practice. Here's the point. There is no moral failure that is not surrounded by human beings that when you miss the mark, you hurt someone. We always hurt someone with a moral failure. I have never heard of a moral failure that didn't harm somebody. That's what makes it a moral failure. But we don't like being failures. We don't want to be failures. I don't want to be a failure. I was on a basketball team here at the church a few years ago, and we were in this church league, and it was, it was fun, and I was still good and active at the time. And, you know, I had this team. We were trying our best to do stuff, but we lost every single game. I hate losing. I didn't know how much I hated losing until I was sitting there going, I'm going to stink and cuss, and I'm, not, and I'm just like ready to jump on people and yell and scream at my team. And I'm like, this is not good. I'm the pastor. That's bad. And the reason, just because I don't want to be a failure, I didn't fail in school, I'm not going to fail in this, I'm not going to fail, I'm not a failure. I think we all feel that way. I'm pretty, it's pretty obvious we all feel that way, because you know what we call this moral failing today? Oh, I made a mistake. 
a mistake? When we miss and hit somebody else? When we use our, when our moral failing has caused harm? Because, yeah, it was just a lie. Yeah, but you didn't give them the information so they could make the right decision. Not only that, you revealed and hid yourself from them. You didn't expose yourself in love because you were scared that they wouldn't love you back. Oh, you know, it wasn't that, it was just a mistake. I looked at the porn, I'm sorry. Really? A mistake? I just accidentally clicked on it. Whoops! And four other pages. Whoops! I didn't mean to spend that money. It just popped out of my wallet and landed there after I'd gone through the store and picked up the thing I wanted. Even though I said I wouldn't. Oh, I just, I just kind of said that truth about those people. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to say anything. They just told me in confidence and asked me not to. Mistake? I don't know about you, but if somebody harmed you with a moral failure, I think if they said it was a mistake, you'd be insulted. I would be insulted. It's not a mistake. That's just because we have cognitive dissonance. See, cognitive dissonance is the, is the thing that happens when something is true and I can't handle that it's true. I can't handle the truth. And so I change the way I think and feel about it to make myself feel better. We do this with sin all the time. We minimize it by calling it a mistake. We minimize moral failure in another way. When, when we suddenly just go, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I learned from it. I mean, that doesn't work in a court of law. You ever notice that? I'm sorry they're dead, sir, but I learned from it. No, no, no. We have to deny this moral failure. We have to move beyond it. And, and so we, we try to minimize it and say, uh, I learned from it, but that doesn't change anything. Here's the thing, difference about darts and moral failures. You can't really see all these darts down here, but the truth is that we think we get to pull them out and try again. But you don't. The past is in the past. You can't go back and change those things. Those moral failures are still back there. Sure, you learn for the future, but does that make it right back there? And what I love to tell to my kids when they go like, yeah, yeah, I learned from it, Dad. I go, okay, prove it. Don't do it again. You learn from your past lie, then stop lying. We don't learn as much as we say we do from our moral failures. From our moral failures, we also try to do this. Well, take a look. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, like, I only have a whole bunch of moral failures, not as many as that guy. Somebody else has got that. That's how people think we as the church are talking about. We're like, oh, well, all of us, we have moral failures, but not like compared to them. Can I tell you what? The church is probably filled with the people who need Jesus the most. They probably all have less moral failures than all of us in here, right? Because moral failure, it doesn't matter. If they have them or I have them, the bottom line is I just admitted I have them. And then there's this good old practice that we've come to, modern American practice, where we, we try to draw our own target, we set it down, and we go, I don't really want to hit, I can't hit that one, so here, there we go, that's good. Or even better, we're just like, okay, I'm going to draw a target around that one. I hit it! That's what the modern world's come to, you just make up your own moral standard and you'll all be okay. Because that's who you are and you can't help that, that's you. So be you, you be you, you do you good. And what we're saying is that moral standards, when we break them, that's my purpose in life. I did it on purpose. Now, I don't know about you, but somebody who sits in a criminal box who's done something morally wrong and says, well, it's just who I am. That's, an un that's somebody who gets a lot longer of a sentence. 
That's frightening that we're training people to say to their moral standards, well, this is who I am. You need to change. When did we get to set the moral standard? When did we get to invent this thing? Last time I checked, 43 years ago, I wasn't here. A hundred years ago, none of us were here. Why do we get to make the moral standard? God set the moral standard. We've missed the moral standard. And so everyone has said, and we got to deny it. It's just too uncomfortable. We can't handle it. And so we push it away. We minimize it. We change the subject. But here's the problem. That moral failure hurts others all the time. As we saw over and over and over again, it hurts other people. It's never something that simply happens. Secondly, it hurts yourself. Well, I, I've done this moral failure. It didn't hurt anybody else. And you can tell me it hurts God, but you know that's a different conversation. But nobody got hurt. It can hurt you greatly. Let me, let me explain something. God made you for the moral standard. He didn't set you up to have a moral standard you shouldn't live by. And we're not, it's not like you know, you got some factory car and it's like, this is how you should do it. We're like, well, we can have other ways of doing this. No, he made you specifically for a way to live, to love him and to love other people. And we can do that. And then when we sinned in the past, we've all been broken and twisted now, we can hit that marker, but we don't. None of us have. And now we have come to a place where we have littered the floor with moral failures. But when we stop and think about it, that makes me a failure at what God intended me to be in life. If I sit in that long enough, and I think psychologically we don't have to, I just think something's broken. If you have a broken piece of the car, you've got to go replace that piece of the car. And you just keep driving, and other things start breaking. And eventually that car is chugging around, and it has to be repurposed, like to a lawn ornament or something like that. And unfortunately, what I see is an entire world being told, there is no moral failures. Don't worry about that. Science will help you. Medicine will help you. Oh, it's money. Oh, it's government. No, no, no. This is something government can't heal. This is something science can't figure out and money won't buy. You can't get rid of your moral failures. And it hurts us because suddenly now in my life, I have failed at the very purpose God has given me. And if I fail at the very purpose that God has given me, I got to make my own purpose up then. Because what am I going to live for? And I think what we're seeing is people run after all these other saviors to fill the gap for their moral failures that they feel intensely in their side, even though they denied them and ignored them. We're going to have a rise of depression and despair. We're going to have a rise of loneliness. We're going to have a rise in drug addiction. We're going to have a rise in suicides because people need answers. And they don't know where to find them. Because sin has been so made fun of. But Jesus came... And he was declared to be a savior. A savior from what? From ourselves and also from the danger of God. God? I think God loves us. He does. He loves you intensely. But he's also a very just God. My dad loves me intensely. My mom loved me intensely. And you know what happened when I did a moral failing in my home? I wound up in the court of mom and dad. The court of mom and dad is one of those things we all experience. Sister says, I hit her, and I said, no, I didn't. It was an accident. I didn't mean to. And off we go, and suddenly my parents are lawyers. What did you say? And when did you say it? And why is that? Well, if that's happened, and they're putting the logic together, and you're sitting there going, my case is getting smaller and smaller. I plead the fifth. You know, it's that kind of thing. 
But you're in the court of mom and dad. Eventually it comes down to a verdict in which they say, you're getting a spanking, go to your room, time out for you, whatever that punishment was in your world. No screen time. That's the big one nowadays, right? Well, God's a good father of all human beings. He doesn't like it when, his, when human beings hurt one another and morally fail him and his standard. And therefore, one day, just as there's a court of mom and dad, there's going to be a court of dad. It's going to be the heavenly court. And at the end of our lives, which some of us are getting closer to, not about age. You just don't know when you're leaving. We will stand before God, and he will stand there. And he'll look at, yeah, sure, maybe there's some of these things. We're once in, once in a while in our lives. Now we nailed it. Because we got real close and we were there. And he'll go like, awesome, I want to talk to you about that. That's good. This was good. And he'll, when he's done and he's adjudicated the good, he's also going to then go, now, this one. Yeah, you remember, I see everything. I don't even need to ask you any questions, but I want you to tell me. Why? Why that lie? You know you did it. How about this one? And this one. Yeah. And this one. And he'll keep going. Moral failure after moral failure after moral failure after moral failure. And you know what our answer in our culture is? When God judges us on that day, we'll say, God, God I'm sorry. And he'll forgive us, right, if we just say we're sorry. My children go, I'm sorry. And they go, well, I forgive you. I'm like, okay, that's good. I'm glad you said sorry. Sorry is the first step in a journey that the, all, all the ancient world and everybody up until our time used to call repentance. And repentance was a two-part process where you evaluated the things that you've done wrong and you realize those are wrong and you feel sorry about them. I mean, really, did we really want to hurt these people that we hurt? Did we really want to do the things that we did? Of course, we didn't really want to do it. That's why we call it a mistake. That's why we try to minimize it. But we really don't want to. You're feeling sorry already. The problem is we know sorry is not good enough. You can't stand before God and say, I'm sorry. Because he's going to say, then make it right. And at the end of your life, how do you make it right when there's no more life to live? When it's all over, and you stand, and you have to make it right, and you're like, well, I did a bunch of good things to cover it. It doesn't cover it. You're supposed to do good things. That's what it means to make a moral failure, is to not do what we should be doing. And he says, you need to make it right, and here's the danger of God. You can't make it right. I can't make it right. I stand before God bankrupt with no ability to make it right, and only a lot of moral failure to look at. And therefore, then the verdict will come. You're guilty. And there will be a separation. Classically known as hell. And that's frightening. And that's awful. But heaven shouted that a the Savior has come. Science can't solve this. It's beyond the realm of science. Government can't solve this. I think God's got the government in his hand. Money ain't going to solve this. God owns everything. We ain't got enough. Good stuff ain't going to solve this. No extra credit. 
We need somebody to get us out of this mess. We need somebody to help us and free us. Remember what it says in Romans 3.23, what Paul was telling us? Everyone is morally failed. We all fall short of God's glorious moral standard. That's what he's saying. But then he continues. He says, for everyone is morally failed, yet God in his grace. That means unmerited. That's not a Christmas gift. You all expect your Christmas gifts. They're kind of expectations nowadays. This is a gift unexpected from somebody you didn't believe it would come from, and you didn't even earn it or deserve it. He goes, I want to give you this. That's grace. He freely makes us right in his sight. Make it right? How? I'll make you right. He did this through Christ Jesus. When he freed us from the penalty, from the punishment of our moral failures. Is this not clear as day? And he says, for God, how does he do this? Because God presented Jesus, this Savior, this one who was prophesied and born. He sent him as the sacrifice, the go-between, the guy who got in the middle. In the ancient terms, the sacrifice of the animal was to take your moral failings and receive the punishment for you. It was your replacement. And Jesus stepped in as your replacement for your moral failings and mine. And people are made right with God when we trust, when we believe that Jesus God sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Guys, this is the answer. You may feel sorry, and I pray to God that you feel sorry about your moral failings. But let me tell you, you got to make it right. And God has given you a gift to make it right. He gave you a gift of his own son, Jesus, who on the cross, out of his love, was willing to bear our moral failings as your sacrifice. He got in the way of our own punishment so that we would not have to suffer and be removed into hell. He loved you despite all your moral failings. This is the beauty of the church. God knows your moral failings. He knows your mess, and yet he loved you greatly to save you. Amen. What I want to tell you is today the way that you receive that is by trusting his promise to you. And you have that opportunity to do that right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Heaven shouted. He made a huge declaration that a Savior has come. A Savior that isn't going to save you from your financial strains and all that stuff. Oh, he'll, he'll help with all that stuff. He'll help with the medical issues. But ultimately, he's come to save you from yourself, to make you new. And he does it with a gift. You don't earn it. You don't go clean up. You can't clean those moral failures up. That's what he came for. You made the mess. I made the mess. Jesus cleans up the mess. If you need Jesus to clean up your mess, if you need him to make it right with God, to make it right in the end so you can move forward in life with a new slate, to make things right with everyone else around you and to live for his name, then today is the day you should receive him. I want to give you that chance right now, right where you're at. If you know you need to receive Jesus to clean up your moral failings, and this is the first time you've ever done that, or maybe it's the time you're coming back to him, I want to pray with you. Would you put your hand up? You're just saying, that's me. I'm ready to receive that gift. Amen. Amen. Just this is the prayer right now. If you want, you bow your head and just talk to God, and you say, God, I am so sorry for my moral failings. I'm so sorry that I'm going to do more. I want to make it right. 
by trusting that Jesus has made it right for me. Thank you for forgiving me now. Would you come into my life now since we're right? Would you lead me in life now? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.